The three pillars of sustainability are environment, economic, and social. Unless formally, these pillars are known as people, planet, and profits. And knowing this, I do think that we fail at supporting a vital part of these three pillars. It is so easy to speak of fair pay and equal opportunity, regardless of race, gender, marital status, religious beliefs, disability, or even political opinions. And yet, this is a vital part of sustainability that often gets overlooked, and consequently, social injustice is deeply threaded in our culture. And I would contend that not only does social injustice undermine our efforts toward a sustainable future, but also the two are completely disconnected in our present society. So stay tuned for episode 166, The Disconnect Between Justice and Sustainability. Welcome to the Adventures in Sustainable Living podcast. Your host has lived an off-grid, sustainable lifestyle for over 20 years. His homestead is run on solar energy, he has an earth shelter greenhouse, and produces much of his own food. And all of this takes place in the middle of the forest in Colorado. Now, let's join Patrick, the man that not only teaches the skills of sustainable living, but lives that life every day. Welcome back, everyone, to the Adventures in Sustainable Living podcast. This is your host, Patrick, and this is episode 166, The Disconnect Between Justice and Sustainability. But before we get started, we have two things to do. The first is the sustainability question of the week. And this week's question is somewhat task-oriented, so here we go. List five ways in your life that you are making efforts to be more sustainable. And we will talk about this again at the end of the episode. And the second thing we have to address, of course, is the good news story of the week. And last week's episode, or last week's good news story of the week, was about Dracula frogs. And this week's story is about seahorses. White's seahorses, which is an Australian icon, is the only such creature on Australia's endangered species list. And consequently, Australia continues to make efforts to restore the seahorse populations. And just this past May, hundreds of these seahorses were released north of Newcastle, and the next release site is going to be in a tide pool north of Sydney. And this is part of the largest release of captive bred seahorses in history. The seahorses were bred at the Sea Life Aquarium in Sydney and is part of an ongoing population rehabilitation program and several more releases are planned for 2024. Now these little seahorses are also known as New Holland Seahorse and populations have been in decline for years now and the most recent release is the sixth such release in 2023 with a total of 400 seahorses being released. And as you have likely heard me say, every little thing we do makes a difference, and in this case, it is very literal. This seahorse is 13 centimeters long, which is about 5.1 inches, and I can say from personal experience, 
when you are scuba diving and you find a seahorse, it really is exciting because you don't see them very often. So there you go. It always these good news stories about animals, of course, get me excited. Being being the fact that I'm a veterinarian and been in the industry for quite some time. So let's move on to this week's topic concerning the disconnect between social justice and sustainability. And as I said above, the three pillars of sustainability are people, planet, and profits. And I think the challenge that we have is taking care of the people and meaning all of the people. So one of my favorite authors is Simon Anholt. And Mr. Anholt has been an advisor of various international leaders for much of his career. And he wrote a book called The Good Country Equation, How We Can Repair the World in One Generation. And now it's truly a good read and something I highly recommend. And at any rate, in part of his book, he was discussing his childhood and shared something that his father used to always say to him. And that was, check your privilege or mind your privilege. But most of us in developed countries have no concept of minding our privilege because it's something we have always had. Even I will admit that despite growing up in a farming family and never really having a lot of extra things, I had no concept of how privileged I was until I started traveling and working in third world countries. I spent a considerable amount of time working with families that lived in a 150 square foot handmade thatched hut with a dirt floor and a fire pit in the corner for cooking. So not only does this make you appreciate what you have, but it also makes you realize just how privileged you are to have what you have, despite how little that may be. And this is because we have choices and many of the people I worked with do not. And they do not really make a living. They are literally just trying to live. And while most of us sit quite comfortably in our day-to-day lives, 1.1 billion people around the world live in poverty, subsisting on $2.15 per day. Now, social injustice is an enormous problem that permeates every aspect of our society, and volumes could be written about this topic, and indeed already have been, What I want to do is to simply focus on the disconnect we have between justice and sustainability in our food system. In the United States, 60% of our fresh fruit and 40% of our vegetables are imported, with Mexico being the biggest supplier. In the United Kingdom, approximately 65% of fresh fruits and vegetables are imported, with Spain being their largest supplier. Australia only imports about 17% of their fresh produce, and their top import countries are Malaysia, China, Vietnam, the U.S., and New Zealand. 
So considering that, let's look at the average wages of agricultural workers in these countries. In the U.S., it's $15 an hour. In Mexico, it's 71 pesos an hour, which is about $4.18 U.S. In Spain, it's 7 euros an hour, which is about $7.74 per hour U.S. In China, it's 19 yuan, which is $2.18 U.S. And in Vietnam, it's 5.29 million dong per month, or the equivalent of $1.36 U.S. In Malaysia, it's 1306 Malaysian ringgit per month, which is about $1.78 per hour U.S. So my point being here is that in developed countries, a significant portion of our fruits and vegetables are supplied by farm workers with very marginal wages. And you know, you might argue that their way of life is better than being unemployed, or perhaps their cost of living is significantly less than ours. But I would counter that by repeating something I brought up before. Check your privilege. We have choices, but they don't. So I think by this point, and especially if you've been following me for a while, it's quite obvious that our food systems are completely unsustainable. And fortunately, there are a lot of very smart people around the world taking a very hard look at that right now. But I would also argue that unsustainable food systems require a steady supply of people without options. To have such a wonderful food chain that gives us so many choices is great from a first world perspective, but however, it is just such a system that leaves people out. So where is the social justice in that, if not everyone is included? So one of the three pillars of sustainability, of course, is people. And to truly build a sustainable food system, we need everyone at the table and even the most marginalized populations. Because this is the only way to include social justice in everything that we do, and everyone must have a voice in the matter. And perhaps this is the only way to gather enough people to build the political clout to change the status quo. So look at it from this perspective. The most marginalized farmers farm workers are the very ones that get the greatest exposure to deadly pesticides that are used in our food systems. And these workers often have no choice but to work for the large companies that are environmentally destructive. But what if these workers had choices? What if they had enough clout to refuse to be exposed to all of these pesticides? What would our food system look like then? Millions of people around the world have no choice but to buy the cheapest food available. What would happen if everyone always had easy access to healthy organic whole foods? What would happen to the market share of the ultra-processed foods that make up 60% of the average U.S. diet? 
We have all heard various accounts of small communities being polluted from industrial byproducts and the waste resulting in contamination of land and groundwater. And oftentimes someone finally figures it out because there's a significant increase in the rates of cancer or spontaneous abortions or other health problems. And the same sort of things happen with contamination from industrial agriculture. So what if these small communities had the financial and political power to refuse such polluting industries? Where would these industries go and what would they do if they had nowhere to pollute? And this is why I say that an unsustainable system needs a steady supply of people without options and this is especially true in our food systems. Because true sustainability in our food systems and ultimately includes and benefits everyone who participates in it. And this is the foundation of social justice, equity, and inclusion. You know, you truly have to ask yourself sometimes, what were we thinking? Well, I can tell you what we were thinking. We have chosen to focus all of our efforts on the one pillar of sustainability called profits. So let's look at another example of how we tried to fix something that really wasn't broken in the first place and how that created a significant amount of social injustice. And I know it's it is very difficult to look back in our past and see some of the difficult things that have happened because all of us today had nothing to do with that. But looking at our past is the best way to learn how to build a better future. So historically, the U.S. is responsible for a disproportionate amount of greenhouse gas emissions And we're responsible for 14% of global emissions, despite the fact that we only comprise about 5% of the global population. And of all those emissions, our agricultural practices result in about 21% of that. Now, we now know that industrial agriculture is not sustainable because this is a large-scale monoculture farming with intensive use of fertilizers, pesticides, and herbicides. And this foundation of our food system, it does not protect the environment. It does not protect human health. And furthermore, we fail to see that environmental degradation and social injustice are actually connected. So allow me to explain And this is the part that's going to be difficult sometimes for people to hear and think about. So Europeans colonized North America basically by stealing land from numerous peoples and communities with a tremendous amount of social diversity. And with few exceptions, these Native American peoples had a rather sophisticated understanding of how to grow food and manage the environment without degrading the very thing on which they depended. And this essentially is the basis of regenerative agriculture. So as land was taken from the Native Americans, the land use also changed. Traditional land management was replaced with European farming methods, 
and that being the wholesale clearing of land and intensive farming. And the end result of that, of course, was unprecedented deforestation, soil erosion, and environmental degradation. And profits from these land seizures were used were then used to promote further destructive practices. Because next came the forced labor. First there was an influx of indentured servants followed by slave labor, and after the abolition of slavery, sharecropping just simply prolonged the servitude of former slaves while supporting the profits of commodities such as cotton, corn, wheat, and tobacco. And now, as colonization continued to spread west, so did the destructive agricultural practices. And eventually, over time, government policies and subsidies favored industrial agriculture and forced the small to medium farms out of business and wild and biologically diverse landscapes began to disappear, as well as the things that we depend on for survival. That being wildlife habitat, flood mitigation, water filtration, and carbon sequestration. And all along the way, racism, sexism, and discrimination continued to build higher and higher barriers to anyone who was not white and male. So hopefully by now you're beginning to realize that our total lack of connection between social justice and sustainability affects how we have developed our food systems. And unfortunately, it just doesn't stop there. Just take a long look at our social and community structure. We still have a system that promotes the segregation of poor communities and communities of color from white communities and those of affluence. Fresh organic foods and minimally processed foods are then sold to select markets at higher prices that are both geographically and economically inaccessible to marginalized communities. And these marginal communities then purchase the cheapest food available, which is the highly refined products of industrial agriculture. And this is one of the reasons that we see a disproportionate rate of specific health problems in these communities. And now the National Institute of Medicine published a rather interesting study on this very topic. And I have provided a link to that study in the resources section if you're interested. But that study is just yet another example of how, even in our food systems, things are segregated. So for a decade now, scientists have realized that soil health is key to mitigating climate change. But you know, we can't stop producing food, but the answer to that dilemma is regenerative agriculture, which is the concept of growing food but caring for the entire ecosystem. And you know, as stated above, many Native American cultures had a rather sophisticated knowledge of regenerative agricultural practices that was simply a part of their heritage. And yet even today, Native American producers have long been left out of the agricultural conversation. 
It seems as if the only reason that is changing is because regenerative agriculture is now becoming a trend. But you know, we can learn some valuable lessons from Native, Native American growers because their traditional methods show, clearly show, that caring for the entire ecosystem is not something they talk about, it is simply the way they live. And for Native Americans, it is not regenerative farming, it is truly indigenous farming. So what needs to happen is for us to get to the point that everything on our plate has a story that we can feel good about. For example, you can feel good about the fact that you picked fresh vegetables out of your own organic garden, or you can feel good about the fact that the fresh eggs and perhaps meat came from the chickens that you raised while giving them the best life possible. And I can tell you that our chickens and turkeys practically live at the Hilton, and they do not exactly free range due to the number of predators we have around the homestead, but they have an enormous outdoor yard that's fully protected. So can you really feel good about the meat you consume if you know that that cow was raised in a cruel, restrictive environment and killed and butchered inhumanely? Can you really feel good about the vegetables you eat when that food was tended by someone who has no choice but to work for a subsistence wage and deal with the constant exposure to a high concentration of deadly pesticides? But you could feel good about it if all of those farm workers were people who actually had a choice and they actually had a voice in what goes on in their lives. The things that many of us don't see is that there are many forms of discrimination for farmers and farm workers in our food production system just simply because they are people of color, women, LGBTQ, immigrants, or someone of low economic class. So the first thing we need to do is to make an effort to understand the challenges faced by these members of our community, then we need to support and implement the necessary changes to make improvements in equity, inclusion, and social justice. Then we actually have a food system that is more diverse and more resilient because it has more assets. And this is how we start to change the social injustice that threads its way through all aspects of social sustainability. So I would ask, do we presently have a system that actually promotes this equity and equality? And I would actually say no, because the majority of farmers are white heterosexual males. They are the ones in the positions of power they are the employers and farm operators. They hold all the assets and have the political and social influence. And these are the very people that have the power to change the system to something that is equitable because this is the key to social justice. And as far as social justice is concerned, I think it's important to discuss 
the difference, to discuss the difference or distinguish the difference between equality and equity. And while these terms sound familiar, the implementation of equality and equity actually produces very different outcomes, especially for marginalized people. And you know, I actually read a very nice article on this that was published by the George Washington University, and that will help give you a better understanding of this topic, and I, of course, provided a link to that in the article of the resources section. So basically, equality means that each individual or group of people has access to and are given the same resources or opportunity. So in this case, think of equal opportunity employment. But the concept of equity acknowledges that each person has different circumstances and provides the needed resources to ensure an equal outcome. So I'm sure that all of us remember or have heard this, the old proverb that if you give a person a fish, you feed them for a day. If you teach a person to fish, you feed them for a lifetime. So an equality-based solution means that everyone has the same number of fish. An equity-based solution means everyone has access to the same resources and tools to learn how to fish on their own. And another example, and this is a great example that I took from this article published by George Washington University. An equality-based solution. Okay, there is a community meeting about a local environmental health concern, and all members of the community are invited and have equal opportunity to attend. But the meeting is held only in English, despite the fact that English is not the primary language for 25% of the community. An equity-based solution would be the community hires translators to provide, or they provide an initial meeting that is held in another language. So the bottom line is that equity is not about giving out wealth or redistributing wealth. It's about creating and supporting pathways for success through fair access to resources of wealth. So in relation to agriculture, this means access to learning opportunities, to capital, to farmland or technical support and government programs. So you have to realize that social and cultural systems are not naturally inequitable. But when those systems are intentionally designed to favor certain demographics for such a long period of time, the outcomes we see may seem unintentional, but underneath it all, the outcomes are rooted in discriminatory practices. So for example, According to the 2017 Census of Agriculture, white farmers receive two-thirds more financial payout from government support programs relative to farmers of color. An equitable solution means fair and just compensation for all farmers and farm workers, 
safe working and living conditions, promoting access to farmland and capital for farmers of color and new farming startups, and providing support for women farmers as well. So the bottom line is that it's easy to make things equal, but making things equitable requires systemic change because equity means resolving the imbalance in our social systems, but social justice means changing our systems in such a way that leads to long-term, sustainable, and equitable access for generations to come. Now, I came across an interesting article from the John Lewis Institute of Social Justice, and this quote from their website sums up things in a fantastic way. The concept of social justice includes a communal effort dedicated to creating and sustaining a fair and equal society in which each person and all groups are valued and affirmed. It encompasses efforts to end systemic violence and racism and all systems that devalue the dignity and humanity of any person. It recognizes that the legacy of past injustices remains all around us, so therefore promotes efforts to empower individual and communal action in support of restorative justice and full implementation of human and civil rights. End of quote. So what I've really tried to do in this episode is to use our food supply chain as an example of a system that is not only unsustainable, but also lacks any sort of social justice. So I've tried to use this as a way to simply demonstrate how you cannot have sustainability without social justice because a lack of social justice completely undermines one pillar of sustainability, which is the people. So when we all get to the point where we realize that sustainability without justice just isn't, or we all stand up and speak out and say, if you don't have justice, then neither do I, and that is when we will make progress. As you have likely heard me say before, I grew up in an environment that was narrow-minded in every aspect. Everyone around me had zero tolerance for anyone who was not white or had different religious beliefs, much less any sort of different sexual orientation. And I have very distinct memories of going to public places where there was a white section and a colored section. There were separate restrooms for white people and people of color, and everything was strictly segregated. And it really truly was not until I moved to Colorado and I started my educational process and traveled internationally that I was exposed to many different peoples and cultures. And it was only then that I began to realize that people are just people and we are all in this together. And it was only then I realized what I had been missing. That being a whole different world of people, ideas, cultures, music, food, and many other things. And it was truly 
an eye-opening experience for me. And unfortunately, I think social injustice is still deeply threaded throughout our culture, and taking steps to change that is truly the only way we will ensure a sustainable future. But you know, there are things that we can all do to make sure that that happens. And as we figure out ways to deal with our ever-changing world and building a better future, everyone needs to have a seat at the table. Because it's one thing to agree with equity, it is another thing to stand up and make sure that it happens. And when it comes to applying equity to everyday life, many people I think are simply at a loss, but fortunately there are very simple things we can do to promote social equity and inclusion. And first of all, use your voice because it's one of the most powerful tools you have at your disposal. So just speak up when someone makes an insensitive comment about someone's gender, race, skin color, or sexual orientation and point out how such comments do not promote inclusion. And you know, I created quite a ruckus at Thanksgiving dinner one time with my family because I decided to speak up. And my older sister was dating a man from India, and he was a board-certified human internal medicine specialist. And so we're talking a highly educated man, and he was actually very nice because I'd had I'd spent some time with him. And my parents just simply didn't like him because of his skin color, and they were making comments about that over dinner. So uh, let's just say I got very vocal, and uh, they never talked like that in my presence again. So the point being here, just speak up. So the next thing you can do is allow everyone to contribute to a conversation. So, for example, because I work in multiple different medical facilities, I have the opportunity to work with a lot of people from different cultures. And whenever you have meetings concerning hospital operations, there's always people in the background who never say anything. So when you notice this, go out of your way to ask their opinion. Which leads us to the next thing. Just learn to listen. So just listen to someone else's perspective without sitting there or standing there and defending your own beliefs. So ask them questions about why they feel that way and learn from them. And because we truly start to grow when we listen to a different viewpoint and accept it while still holding on to our own beliefs. And that is when we start to work together and promote positive changes. And the next thing you can do is empower other people around you that may be at a disadvantage. So first of all, do a little bit of personal reflection to increase your awareness of the inherent inequalities in the way our world works, then you'll have a better idea of how you can empower other people around you. For example, because I'm a veterinarian and because of how I have shaped my career, I'm in a, this rather unique position to teach other people. And I've spent a tremendous amount of time working in third world countries, teaching other veterinarians that do not have the same educational level that's provided in the U.S. 
And with this increased knowledge, those veterinarians can perform new procedures, perform new tests, and offer improved services, and consequently they can improve their financial success in their practice and achieve a better standard of living. And another example is I'm presently working in a facility with a veterinarian that's from Mexico, and he's working as a technician for now while he studies to pass the test needed for him to obtain a license to practice in the U.S. So whenever I have cases to work up or diagnose, I include him in that process so he can continue to learn as much as possible. So I would encourage you to think about your daily environment and find your own ways to empower other people because it's truly not difficult. And you never know, you just might make a new friend. So I truly think that it is quite unfortunate that not only is social injustice still threaded deeply in many parts of our culture, but we also have this complete disconnect between social justice and sustainability. But reversing that is going to require making some systemic changes. But systemic changes are also exactly what is needed for all of us to build a sustainable future by supporting all three pillars of sustainability, which is people, planet, and profits. So let's wrap up this episode by talking about the sustainability question of the week, which is list five ways in your life that you are making efforts to be more sustainable. And I would say that answer is going to be different for everyone. So guess what? That's your homework assignment for this next week. Make your list of those five things. So one last comment, folks, before I close this episode. For those of us who live in a developed country, I truly believe the first step to promoting social justice is something that Simon Anholt said. Check your privilege. So until next week, folks, this is your host, Patrick, signing off. Always remember to live sustainably because this is how we build a better future.